0: Uh, We're doing a series called Church for the Future. We want to see what the Church for the Future looks like because in many ways, the Church for the Future looks very similar to the Church of the Past. And it looks very similar to the church in Thessalonians or Thessalonica. And what we're going to be doing today is looking at this passage this morning. And our theme for this whole year is advance. We want to advance the church. We want to advance the mission. We want to advance the gospel. And if we could do that, I believe that God is calling us to fulfill the exact thing that he wants us to do for 2019. It's not to go backwards, but to move forward for the gospel. So let me uh, read the passage for you this morning, and then I'll lead us in a word of prayer together as we look into God's word. First Thessalonians chapter 6, uh, uh, chapter 1, I'm sorry, verses 6 to 10. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let us pray. Father, these words uh, that Paul writes to this uh, new church in Uh, The Thessalonians, uh, the church that was eager to know what it meant to live as disciples in a world where everything was totally the opposite of what they had known. A world in which uh, there was so much oppression and corruption. A world in which that those who attained favor were the ones who were the wealthy. And as a result of that, Lord, these Thessalonians who became Christians now had a new reality, a new king, a new savior. And that's you, Jesus. And, and as a result of that, they were being persecuted. And they needed guidance. They needed to know, to know how do we walk in this world as a disciple of Jesus. Is it the simple thing that we've always been known to believe? Or is it something more than that? And at the heart of the gospel is this uh, call to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves, to follow you. So we pray, Lord, that as we look into your word, we can understand what that means that we can imitate the right things rather than the wrong things. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When you think of imitation, what do you think of? Now for for most of us, when we think of imitation, I think the first thing that comes to mind is something that's a counterfeit, something that's not real. And so we have what we call cheap imitation. Now if you've ever um, been around the world Uh, You travel, one of the first things that tourists do is they go buy these imitations. Uh, I went to Turkey uh, a few years back. I did this great trip called the Seven Churches of the Book of Revelation. So we got to see some of the, the old architecture of these original seven uh, churches, places like Laodicea, Philadelphia, and, and so forth. On one of our trips, uh, as we were exiting the sort of the tourist place, there was this big sign, and, and, and it said this. And I love the authenticity of the sign. Genuine fake watches. Now think about this. They had a sign that says genuine fake watches. They were not lying to you that they're selling fake watches. They were telling you up front they were genuine, they were fake, and they were cheap. Well, when you think about um, imitations, most of us think of imitations like this. We think about false advertising. We think about misleading uh, a recent report by the Government Accountability Office revealed that products purchased from third-party sellers on five major e-commerce sites could be counterfeit, uh, harmful to youth. Out of the 47 products, Air Jordans, uh, Nike, Yeti, uh, travel mugs, Urban Decay makeup, uh, uh, cable chargers, and so forth, that, that stores that they bought from Amazon, Walmart, eBay, Sears, so forth, 20 out of the 47 were actually counterfeit. I think about a counterfeit shoe that looks like this. Now, for those of you who can't tell the difference between something that is real and something that's fake, this is actually fake. Uh, But so many of us, we don't really know the difference, or sometimes we may not even care about the difference, and I think in some sense, the whole idea of counterfeit was really what had sort of come into the first century church. And Paul warns against counterfeit teachers. False teachers who would steal your money or, or false teachers who would preach a, a, a different gospel. Dysfunctional leadership, dead theology. And I think sometimes that's kind of what we think about when we think about imitation. But there's a different type of imitation. Imitation that is actually positive uh, imitation that is actually good it's the idea of following somebody imitating them mimicking them so that you can become like them you know there's a saying uh that many of you have heard it says that imitation is a sincerest form of flattery and if you think about it what that really means is that the best way that you could flatter someone is to imitate them So as a little athlete, as you're playing baseball, you're watching somebody like Mike Trout and you are imitating his swing so you can become a little bit more like Mike Trout. Or you imitate somebody who is a good uh, communicator. I remember a young uh, pastor that I uh, was mentoring in seminary and he said he would listen to a particular type of preacher because he would imitate them. He would actually uh, practice their sermon so that he can become better in what he was doing. So there's actually a good form of imitation where we are copying the right thing. And so this passage today we're going to be looking at, Paul is reminding the church that we are to be imitating the right thing. And Paul is describing himself, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So as we're doing this journey in 1 Thessalonians, we're taking the trek of how the church went from Asia all the way into Europe. And so those of you who've been here the last two weeks, Uh, You've heard the story in which Paul uh, has a dream in Acts chapter 16, and this dream, the angel of Macedonia, which is the northern part above Philippi, the angel says, come to us. And so Paul's intention was actually just go around Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, and he goes into Thessalonica, and he goes to Philippi, uh, Neapolis, Philippi, and then ends up in this city called Thessalonica, Uh, Thessalonica was uh, an amazing uh, commerce city. It was a city that had population over 200, 300,000. It was the largest city in that province. It also has a cultural amphitheater where entertainments would take place. This is one actually uh, an architectural. So so this is one of the amphitheaters that they had where people would come and, and, and do shows and have gladiator events was also a place in which paul preached the gospel he first went to the synagogue and then he went to the temple courts and eventually or he went to the gentiles and all these people came to know christ and so this little church was formed was given birth in this city and as this the church began to grow one of the things that happened was persecution and they were being persecuted by the romans they were being persecuted by the jews and as a result, when Paul goes to, uh, eventually he goes back to uh, Corinth, which is on the southern side, he writes this letter in, chapter, uh, in first, uh, Acts chapter 18. And so here is the point that I want to talk about, that Paul is now reminding them, how do we live the Christian life? How do we as Christians become better Christians? And I believe that imitation is the most natural form of discipleship. Imitation is the most natural form of discipleship. If we want to understand discipleship, how we disciple others, the way in which we display discipleship is by mentoring somebody and we become the visible example of what it means to follow Jesus. And sometimes it's not easy, is it, to be a good, uh, the one, to be a good model. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this. The church of the future imitates Paul and Jesus in three ways. And we're going to look at what these three ways are. So the first thing that we want to see here is this. That we learn to follow through the process of imitation. This is called discipleship. If you want to understand what discipleship is, it's really the idea of mimicking somebody who is already following Jesus. So what he says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, you, we know therefore brothers loved by the Lord. Um, I'm sorry, verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of the severe suffering. The word imitation in the Greek uh, literally is, is where we get the word, English word, mimic. Uh, it's mimetai. Uh, it means literally to be a, a, somebody who copies. And this is actually a, a theme in Paul's writing. Paul writes over and over again for this new early church to imitate him. And if you think about it, That is, in some ways, uh, the best way for a new Christian to grow. Because if you think about how child development works, how do children learn best? Children learn best by watching and mimicking their parents. Uh, According to uh, one research, they talked about how children uh, mimic their parents' parents' because MIMIC matters. And in this particular article, they talked about three areas in which children look to their parents. Number one, in terms of bonding. When your kid imitates your behavior, you have the immediate emphatic response. So copying as you grow your way through a set of sit-ups is an act of bonding. So when they copy you, they're actually bonding with you. The second thing about uh, MIMIC is that it's creating actually their own sense of independence. By copying you, they are, it's amazing counterintuitive, but copying the activity like cooking or shaving helps them instill a sense of bigness in the kids. They begin to feel a sense of power, being able to do something that they think they'll one day be able to do. So like if you're driving a car and your child is, is mimicking that, it's actually increasing their sense of own independence. But the third thing that is most common about mimicking is actually language development. Imitation is is pretty much the cornerstone of language development for your kid. That's why it's so important that you talk to your kids, talk around your kids, read to the kids. Because as you talk to your kids, your kids then begin to mimic what you say. It is one of the most important reasons that uh, we as parents uh, are to be careful in what we say. It's embarrassing sometimes when our kids copy the wrong things. When we say things out of anger or we say things out of, maybe even out of sarcasm, and that gets copied. And then they go around their school saying the same thing. And you look bad because you're a bad parent in teaching them. But you know what Paul says? That, that if you think about discipleship, that's the same process of how we teach a younger believer to mature in their relationship with God. And so, again, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul makes this statement. He says, follow my example as I follow my example of Christ. One of the things I am so—that's uh, that's so important is that we learn to imitate well. And if you look at a generation of young pastors that are growing up, one of the things that I've been uh, surprised by is how few of these young pastors had, had good models for them that they can imitate. I just spoke at a, a church this past weekend, uh, a, a church of about 80, 90 people. They're just growing uh, like crazy. And it's a, it's a church of all college and young, young adults. A few of them are now married. And one of the things they said to me as, as this young, we have no idea how to do church. It started as a little Bible study and has now grown to a church. And so there I said, Pastor Ray, can you help us? Can you model for us? Can you tell us what to do? And I think that's a, that's a good sign. That, that imitation really is the way in which we are discipled as well. So you think about it. You know, when you think about even in this particular picture, how little children copy their parents in almost everything. Well, I believe that God calls us to, be, uh, to imitate uh, one another. And there are three areas that I think imitation is, is really important. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, Paul uses this again be imitators of God as children. And there are three areas that Paul says. Number one, he says, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for you, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. A good imitation it, it smells great or smells nice. There's a, a, a fragrant aroma that is contagious. And so Paul is saying there are three areas that we could start teaching younger believers and that we could ourselves model. Number one is to walk in love. And I think that's an important concept that, that, that sometimes people in our culture don't know how to walk in love. They know how to walk in lust and selfishness and and it's all about me. But people don't know how to genuinely walk in biblical love where we act and when we do it on their behalf rather than just ours. The second area that Paul reminds the church is imitate God in generosity. He says, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for you. The second area of imitation is to model generosity, to be able to give ourselves. God gave us his son, his one and only son, as an expression of his generosity to us. A lot of times when Christians, when people become Christians for the first time, uh, the, one of the things that they're challenged with is just this whole idea of giving. Because in our culture, we are training even our church people to get. Think about this. You go to a church and you ask the question, what can I get from this church? But I think true discipleship is not about what can I get. The true discipleship is about what can I give. And the way they learn what they can give is by looking at other people who have been generous with their money, with their time, with their resources. And as we model generosity, we are helping people to imitate Jesus. But the third area is sacrifice. And offering and sacrifice to God. I think one of the most important lessons of discipleship is that we walk in sacrifice, that we walk sometimes at the expense of ourselves for the sake of others. And I think those three things are the areas that that we as older believers can help others model and model for other beliefs so they can imitate us. Now, some of you in this room are thinking, I'm not at that place yet. But here's the good news about being an imitator, that, that there are always people one step behind us. And our job as models is to help them imitate us. And so as we look for those who we can imitate, we look for those that can imitate us. And so we create this chain reaction of discipleship. And I think that's one of the most important things that we can do. Is that really imitation is one of the best forms of discipleship. But the second thing he says in this, in this uh, letter is this. That we model discipleship on how we handle Suffering. And adversity, That's th- and this is what spiritual maturity is all about. Notice what he says in the next verse. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Paul says that we are to model the way in which, if suffering and trials come along our way, that we are to model that endurance and perseverance in the midst of suffering. And I think one of the best ways that we can show the world of what a Christian truly is, is how do we handle persecution? How do we handle suffering? How do we handle difficulty? And, and, and one of the things that's interesting about suffering is the sort of the, the counter, right? You think about what, when you think of suffering, what do you think of? We think of, of sort of the synonyms like pain, agony, or, and, and some of the responses like bitterness, and, and, and hostility, whatever those words are, we sort of tie that in with suffering. But the Christian biblical understanding of suffering is this, that the counter to suffering or, or the complement to suffering is joy. Now you think about that. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That Paul uses the same word, that, that you suffered severe suffering with this attitude of joy. And that is a unique Christian concept. It actually goes back to the book of James. If you look at James, he says these words, right? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, that whenever you suffer, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. I love the idea that both James and Paul give to us. That suffering for a Christian, uh, the response to suffering is not the way in which the world responds. Sometimes anger and hostility, but we respond with joy. And the reason we can respond with joy is because our perspective is different. But so many in our culture, when when we face suffering, we become sort of bystanders. In other words, we we sort of get sucked into situations and, and we become resentful. We become angry at God, even though God was not directly involved. You know, I think um, of this illustration. Whenever I think about sort of being a passive uh, participant to suffering, I think about this bird named Chippy. Uh, Ma- Max Lucado has, a, uh, in one of his books, he talks about this cher- a parakeet named Chicky, uh, uh, Chippy. And Chippy was peacefully perched in his cage. And as he was perched in his cage, the owner decided to do something very creative, right? Uh, got a vacuum cleaner and took off the nozzle and started to clean uh, Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. Uh, but as the owner was cleaning the cage, she received a phone call, so she picked up her phone to answer. And she put the nozzle upward, and poor Chippy got sucked in. He went all the way into the vacuum cleaner, and she heard the sort of the noise of, of him going in. So she did what any bo- bird owner would do. She shut off the, uh, <laughs> the vacuum cleaner, opened up the vacuum, and there was poor Chippy. He was he was bruised, but he was still alive. He was stunned. He was filled with with dust and soot. And so she grabbed him and she did, oh she she wanted to wash him off. So she put poor Chippy under up, a cold running water. And then realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any ab- compassionate owner would do. She took out a hair dryer and blasted Pippi. <laughs> Imagine three things that happened. He got sucked in, he got washed up, and he got blown over all in the same like five minutes. And so eventually when the news report came out about this bird and what she had done, uh, they asked, a reporter asked um, how Chippy was recovering. And the owner said, "This." Well, she replied, uh, "Chippy doesn't sing anymore. He just sits and stares. He, he's he's traumatized forever." And I think of suffering like that for a lot of people. That for Christians, sometimes we get sucked into to circumstances that are beyond our control. And what ends up happening to anybody is that we just become paralyzed. Or we kind of stare off into space. Or on the other extreme, we become anger and bitter toward God. But here's the thing that Paul says. That the way in which we can model discipleship to our culture, especially for other believers, is that the attitude in which we are to suffer is one of joy. And so James in verse 2 says that. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And the reason he says this is because this that the reason that we can have joy is not because of the suffering itself, because of what suffering produces. And if you truly want to understand how spiritual maturity works in in people's life, that that we grow not through times of, 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 of happiness and convenience, those are good times where everything is easy, but very few people grow in those areas. Most people grow when things get difficult. That's when faith becomes real. And that's what Paul's saying, that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And then he uses two words, maturity and completeness. And both those words describe sort of this process of becoming mature, fully mature in Christ. And I think when you think about the response of this church, it says, going back, You became imitators of us, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And here's what happens. Not only are other believers encouraged when we suffer with joy, but also unbelievers are given testimony of the reality of God. And so in verse 7, it says, So you became a model to all the believers in the area, and the Lord's message rang out to you, not only in this region, but your faith has become known everywhere. One of the greatest apologetics that we have as Christians is how we endure life's circumstances. If life is hard and we respond the same way that the world responds, then maybe the gospel is not fully embedded in our hearts. Maybe what God calls us to do is to, to think like Jesus who suffered... On our behalf, who suffered for the joy that was set before him. That he understood that his suffering was for a greater purpose, a greater cause. Because for a Christian, here's where we have hope. That the world's suffering ends in death. The Christian suffering always ends in resurrection. And that resurrection gives us hope to endure that one day, Christ will make all things right. And so the last verse here in verse 10, it says this, because you're suffering with joy, because you are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. And as we think about what the purpose of our Christian faith is, is we have to be a testimony to other believers, and we are also to be a testimony to unbelievers in how we suffer. You know, recently I just saw an article about uh, China and how persecution is now ramping up in China. They're closing down churches, putting uh, pastors in jail, and even rewriting scripture according to sort of government standards. And I, and, and I was reading one particular interview with the pastor who was sharing that in these last maybe 10 years, there was a lot of religious freedom, and now they're taking all that away. But the beauty of the testimony of the Chinese believers in China is that we will stand firm. No matter if we go to jail, no matter if they take our lives, our joy doesn't come from government acceptance. Our joy comes from Jesus himself. And so that's the thing that we want to focus on is that that that's how we become mature. And really, sometimes in the midst of darkness, that's when we have to believe the most, near uh, end of World War II. Members of allied forces were found searching for farms and houses for snipers. And at one abandoned house, which had been reduced to rubble, searchers found their way into this basement. And there on the crumbling wall, a victim of the holocaust had scratched the star of David. And beneath it were these words. I believe in the sun even when it does not shine. I believe in love even when it does not even if it's not shown. And I believe in God, even when he does not speak. And I think for a Christian, our hope and joy, even in the midst of some really difficult times, is that God is present, that one day God will come back and restore all things to himself. But the last thing is this, that we forge our mission of imitation by sharing the gospel. One of the best ways of evangelism is to live our lives in such a way that other people begin to ask the question, what makes you different? We've we've heard illustrations and and sermons on that. But I really believe that that true uh, evangelism is really about sharing the gospel in everyday life. So often we think of evangelism as this kind of memorized speech or, or this process. And so whether it's the four spiritual law or the bridge illustration, we sort of make it almost artificial. But Paul is saying something interesting here about the gospel. He says that the gospel was lived out. And they were modeling it. And here's how they were living out the gospel. It says, for they, verse 9, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. These people were, were receiving of God and the receiving of Paul and how they received what they were doing. And this is what they did. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I think if you want kind of a summary of what the gospel is. Is that, simply this, turning to God first, and then turning away from our idols second. Um, When I was a young Christian, um, I remember kind of the word order, and I was kind of of interested. Why is it turn to God and then turn from idols? And if you think about it, that actually makes more sense. Because often in our culture, here's how we present evangelism. You got to get rid of your sin first. You got to take all the bad stuff out of your life, and then maybe God will accept you. But the Thessalonians didn't think that way. That the junk in our lives are not to be <laughs> getting rid of. I remember uh, when I was doing some uh, evangelism way back when, um, and I was having this conversation with this, this older uh, man who was coming out of a bar, and, and me and my friend were sharing the gospel, and he says, oh, that's a good thing. Yeah, one day I'll become a Christian, but I wanna kinda live my life first, and then I wanna, get, I wanna become a good person and then become a Christian. That's how a lot of people think, that sometimes God doesn't accept them uh, because of what they do, so they need to get rid of their their stuff (laughs) or their sins, and then maybe God will accept them. That's completely the opposite of evangelism. What Paul is sharing to the Thessalonians is this, that really the first response is that we turn to God. And as we turn to God, God begins to do this work in our hearts. He begins to transform us, renew our minds, and renew our affections, As we love God more, the place in our heart becomes full with God's presence and the things that used to be, the things that we used to focus on our idols become secondary. And as we share that message that really these Thessalonians were living uh, by their testimony through persecution that they had joy and then they were sharing the message of Jesus to those people around them. I want to encourage all of you That our job as Christians is not just to sit in a church every Sunday, hear a good sermon and sing sing some songs and go home. We are called to be equipped here so that we can go out and share the gospel with others. Because really, evangelism is is gospel shared in everyday life. And the reality is, people may not know Jesus, but people may know you. I remember hearing um, this one story, and I'll close with this. Um, It's a story about a a, a man named Joe. Joe was drunk, and he was miraculously converted in the street uh, in a mission outreach. And before his conversion, he gained the reputation of being this derelict, and and, and, and a wino, and, and somebody who was homeless for whom there was absolutely no hope. But following the conversion to Christ, everything changed. Joe became the most caring person in the mission. He spent his days doing whatever he needed to be done, and there was was never anything he was asked to do that he didn't consider beneath him. Whether it was cleaning up some vomit after an alcoholic threw up, or whether scrubbing the toilets after some men left it filthy, Joe did all of it with a heart of joy and gratitude. He could be counted on to feed any man who wandered off the streets, undress, and, and tuck him in bed. And when he was out of it, and then after a long day, he would take, then take care of himself. One evening, after the mission director delivered the evangelistic message to the usual crowd of, of these same people who would come, they had their heads drooped, one of them looked up, came down the altar, and kneeled down to pray. And he was crying out to God for a change. And this repentant drunk kept shouting, oh, God, oh, God, make me like Joe, make me like Joe, make me like Joe. And the director leaned over and said, son, wouldn't it be better if you prayed make me like Jesus? And thinking about it for a few moments, and the man looked up and said, I don't know who this Jesus is, but I want to be like Joe. And I think in some sense that's sort of our call as disciples, is that people may not know Jesus, but they know us. And as we imitate what it means to live gospel-centered lives, to live lives of men and women who have committed our lives to Christ, then people begin to see a reality. And ultimately, our job is not to point them to us. Our job is to then point them to Jesus. As John the Baptist said, I must lessen, and I must decrease, and he must increase. So I want to encourage you in this season as we're, uh, focusing on advancing the church that, that really our mission is to advance the gospel through living the gospel in everyday life it doesn't mean that you need to be perfect but it does mean that you need to be willing to model and as you mature and grow in your relationship with Christ and you model for others what Jesus looks like and so I want to challenge you to think about that to be imitators of Jesus and to allow others to imitate you because that's what discipleship is all about. Let's pray.